We are going to be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And today we enter a little bit deeper into what I would like to call the application-heavy portion of the book. And what I mean by that is up to this point, there's been a lot of doctrine. There's been a lot of information that is absolutely needed. And then now, Paul is going to build upon that foundation and get really practical about, since this is true, this is what you need to do. He follows the same pattern over in the book of Ephesians, and he really begins to turn that corner today. Uh, believe it or not, I'm only going to actually have two points, but this might actually be a longer sermon because there's a lot to unpack here and certainly a lot to apply. And I'm going to spend a lot of time trying to flesh out how do we do what Paul is commanding us to do. Let's pick it up in verse 1. It says this, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on, or, uh, on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now, let's unpack the specifics here. Start at the beginning. If then you have been raised with Christ. I think another way you could probably translate this is since then, that he's saying because you have been raised with Christ, now this is what you need to do based on that. And then the command that he is offering here, the first one at least, is seek the things that are above. But then also notice this. He says, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So in essence, what he's saying here, we'll unpack this a bit more. Uh, in fact, let me go ahead and give you the principle up front. Since Jesus has changed your past, your present, and your future, make him and his kingdom your priorities. Since Jesus has changed your past, present, and future, make him and his kingdom your priorities. So when he says, seek the things that are above, he doesn't mean, all right, go sit in a dark room, just you and a candle and a Bible that you can't read and think big theological thoughts all the time. And that means you're doing it. You're checking the box. You're seeking the things that are above. He doesn't mean simply spend all time in prayer, never cook a meal, never serve a poor person, never engage with other Christians. He's not leading them down a path of being what some might call so heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. Okay, He's not pushing anybody in that direction. But at the same time, what he is talking about is this active pursuit of Jesus and the glory of God in all things. So one way to think about it, you computer programmers out there, uh, he is saying make Jesus and the pursuit of his kingdom advancement your operating system. That when you strip it all down, that's what you're about. That if somebody cuts you open and they say, what is this person really about at their core? The answer to that question should be, I'm about Jesus. He's the most important thing in my life. I invest according to what he leads me to do. I parent according to what he leads me to do. I love my neighbors according to what he leads me to do, so on and so forth. That is the operating system of who we are, seeking the things that are above. 
But then also notice this. It says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So he's talking about, if you want to think of it this way, heaven as up there. Now, we know uh, in some ways that, that heaven is not up there. It's more like out there. It's a, a dimension far beyond this one, so to speak. But when we talk about this idea of seated at the right hand of God, I think this gets us into some really good theology, that Jesus is interceding for us as we speak right now. He is praying for us. He is helping us through His Spirit to understand this word this morning. And so when we are being told to seek the things that are above, it makes totally good sense. Because if the most important thing, the operating system of your life, is Jesus, well, why would you not be seeking where He is? So when the second command comes to set your minds on the things that are above, not the things that are here on earth, they fit hand in glove together. Now, let me also give you another image there because everybody in this room is not a computer programmer. What if we thought of it like this? Athletic metaphor here. Any team that you have, any sport that you have, from the NHL pursuing the Stanley Cup to uh, NFL teams that are trying to win the Super Bowl to baseball teams that are trying to win the World Series, a good coach is going to motivate them by saying, this is our goal for this season. It's going to be to get to the playoffs. It's going to be to get that Super Bowl trophy, to win the Stanley Cup, whatever it is. And then that is the organizing principle under which all of the season is lined up. Every spend that's made, every trade that's made, every nutrition plan that is constructed, all the training and practice and so on, they function in the direction of we're going toward this goal. Again, that is what Paul is exhorting them toward. And this would have been particularly important for the Colossians because what have we been taught up to this point? That they are being offered this diminished Jesus. This Jesus is okay, but Jesus is not enough. And then even this language here of him seated, or the things that are above. What were, we, what were the heretics telling these poor Colossian Christians? That, that Jesus is just kind of eh, mediocre. He's certainly not high and exalted and so on and so forth. And so what Paul is doing here, in the contextual way that they needed to hear it, he is holding up Jesus and he's saying, organize your life around him. It's exalted Christology, and it's also very practical theology. And then he even goes a step further right here in verse 3. Look at it. For you have died. So now we're talking about how Jesus has affected our past. And the, the, the quick and dirty on this is once we put our faith and trust in Jesus, it's as if we died with him. We've talked about that in weeks previous. That we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. But then also he uses this language here that's Old Testament in nature. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And what he's getting at there, this is the same kind of language actually that was used over in uh, Isaiah and some other places in the Old Testament. And he's talking about the security that is theirs if they are in Christ. 
And this would have been very important because remember, again, what are they being told? Jesus is not enough. You can't really trust him. You don't need just those truths. Let me get you in on this better deal with the, the uh, ascetic things that David talked about last week and the secret passwords and all the other Jesus plus stuff. And Paul is saying, no, if you're in Christ, your life is hidden with him. So you have a past in which you died to sin. You have a present in which you were secure in Christ. But then also look at this. When Christ, who is your life, appears, so this is return of Christ, this is future thinking, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this three-dimensional, three-temporal, for you sci-fi fans out there, way of thinking about the gospel experience is really, really profound and important particularly to these early believers, but also to us. Because we live in a world where there is trouble literally all around us. It's local, it's national, it's global. And to know that we have a safe harbor into which we can pull the ship of our family on the raging sea of life that goes up and down every day is such a comfort. It's such a help. And so when he makes these bold commands to set your mind on the things above and then also to remember to seek the things that are above, it just makes good sense. Because why would you want to devote your life to seeking things here that rust and get stolen and fall apart, and there's constant threat of this, 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 this malady that could take any of them out. It just makes good sense to push all of your chips in on the bet that you know that it always is going to win. The Lord Jesus Christ and He alone. So you might say, okay, I'm with you, I get it, but how in the world do we do this? Well, I want to spend a little time unpacking that. And I want to kind of think about it in two different ways. I want to talk about this in an overarching sense, and then I want to talk about it in a moment-by-moment sense. The overarching sense, I've already given you two images for, the operating system, the we're trying to win the pennant this year. And so that is the trajectory of our lives. That's who we are. That's what we're about. That's what's going to matter in 10,000 years. Jesus and living for him is what matters most. But then on top of that, let me give you one other image. I don't know how many people do much hiking here. I know a few of you do. I like to hike sometimes. Uh, If you have a compass, the sometimes is important there, by the way. Short hikes, close to the car. That's my favorite. No, I'm kidding. I've actually done some bigger stuff, but that's kind of where I'm at right now. But I do know this. Let's say you get out, you go to the Smokies, wherever, and you get out and you're like, okay, I need to go north because this is where Klingman's Dome is or or wherever I'm trying to get to. You do need to set your compass in that direction generally, but as you go along, you're going to have to keep checking that thing because you're going to come to a lot of little cross trails and a lot of little other things that you're going to need to reorient yourself to the ultimate path that you're taking. And that's how I think this kind of works, that we, that we set our minds on things above in an overarching sense when we become Christians. Like that's a once, once, once and one and done thing. But at the same time, 
every day, all day long, we are still not getting saved over and over, but we are going back and we're saying, okay, I got this decision, I got this parenting thing, I got this work complication, I got to figure out what to do with this house, this house, we do this kind of school, this kind of school, okay, I need my compass to redirect, and that is the moment-by-moment sense. And there's a lot of different ways to talk about, but the way that helps me most, let me just give it to you in a single question, and here's what it is. God, what do you want done in this situation? God, what do you want done in this situation? And it plays in all markets. If you've got some investing decisions you have to make in this crazy market that you're in, this is the way I approach everyone that I make. God, this is your money. What do you want me to do with it? I'm just a steward. I'm just a manager. What do you want to do with your money? And of course, I don't just put my finger in the air and wait, you know, try to get real still. And There's a whole bunch of things that go into that. It's a lot of prayer, some discussion with people that I trust, and I trust their philosophy, uh, a lot of research, a lot of years of getting things right and wrong, so on and so forth. But that similar idea applies to any other thing. Parenting, for example. If you figured it out, by the way, you you let me know, okay? But the parenting process is infinitely complex. But if we're doing it right and we're setting our mind on things above, we're still going back to the well of God's wisdom every day, all day long, asking those questions, particularly when the children are small. And of course, as your kids get older, it changes, so on and so forth. But the example is true at work. You're engaging all kinds of different people, all kinds of different complexity, a lot of different personalities, and you got to figure out, what do I need to do? And so that question of what does it look like to set my mind on things above as I'm working this spreadsheet, as I'm helping this sometimes troublesome employee, as I'm doing this, 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 navigating these dynamics, that question can help us in a lot of different ways. What do you want to do in this situation? And so the way that we lean into that is all the things that we know that we need to do. That we use the spiritual disciplines that the Lord has given us to cultivate a heart of wisdom, a genuine, appropriate, gospel-oriented fear of God, a well-acquaintance with the specific places in the Scriptures where He just tells us straight out, this is what I want you to do. Here's just one example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So in the overarching sense, he is exhorting them to slide all the chips in on Jesus and orient their lives around him. And in the practical moment-by-moment sense, he is doing the same for us. So let me ask you two questions here. Number one, how's it going? Have you come to the place where you say, Jesus is the most important thing about me. I want to organize everything around him. That begins by becoming a Christian. And we don't make any assumptions here at this church. We hold Jesus out every week, and we say, if you've never come to the place where you've turned aside from trying to save yourself and trusted in Christ, let today be the day of salvation. That's where it begins. It begins by becoming a Christian. And then beyond that, how is it going in those moment-by-moment senses? How often is 
Jesus and his kingdom and the pursuit of his kingdom turning over in your mind throughout the day? How often are you encouraged and strengthened by the fact that you are dead to sin, alive in Christ, and have a beautiful future ahead? How often is that turning over in your thoughts? How often is that stirring your heart? And if the answer is, well, not very much. Let today be an encouragement in that direction. Let the Lord use this passage to push us forward, to lead us deeper into what David called last week the gospel deeps, and let this be an encouragement to set your mind on things above and to seek the things that are above where Christ is. All right, so that's the first four verses. Now, let's look at five and beyond. And though he doesn't say this specifically, I think it's almost there's, there's an implicit concept here of him saying, because these things are true, because all this gospel identity is yours, now here's some gospel activity that you need to pay close attention to. He started it, but now he continues to take us deeper. Look at verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Now, in some ways, it's kind of interesting that he would single out these particular sins. Uh, I don't want to speculate too much here. That'll get you in trouble. But it, it seems that there was probably something going on of why he chose, of all the things he could have chosen, he, he chose these. And also, we all know, these types of sins are particularly destructive. But I would also call your attention to this, that he has kind of a, a, a junk drawer term there, that even if your specific trouble, your specific difficulty is not listed here, well, he gets us under the junk drawer of whatever is earthly in you. But what Paul is talking about here, the way he talks about it doesn't need to be lost on us. Look back at that first three words that you have there. Put to death. That's not simply him saying, okay, cut it out. That's not simply him saying, it would be good if you stopped doing. The language that he uses there is incredibly strong, and it means to exterminate completely. The verb means to make dead to slay utterly. And the form of that verb that he uses, it's an aorist imperative. It means that the, the action should be taken, undertaken decisively and with a sense of urgency. And so the meaning of the verb and the force of the tense suggest a vigorous, painful act of personal determination. So I think we need to hear that because he's not using that language lightly. And I think we need to hear that because the way most of us, all of us to some degree, approach sin, we can be a little off balance with it, okay? I've seen this in every church that I've ever been a part of. You'll have some people that like sin is all they think about, it's all they talk about, and the provision that Jesus made for sin, it, it seems like it's so small. There's, a, there's, balance over, there's, a, there's an imbalance on that side. But then there can be 
an imbalance on the other side, that if we don't think enough about sin, there can become this kind of laissez-faire approach to holiness that is also imbalanced. But what the gospel offers us is true balance. Because look at what he says here. All these wonderful things about the gospel, all these wonderful things about who we are in Christ, and then based on that being true, put to death these sins. And then as if that wasn't enough, look at verse 6. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. And so Paul is not trifling with this concept. Sin is real. It comes in a variety of forms, and we'll unpack those in just a moment. Sin killed Jesus. And if we didn't have a hope, we would be destroyed by the wrath of God that is coming for those sins. So the weight is heavy here. And yet at the same time, the freedom that is ours in the gospel is even heavier. And also look at the logic that he uses here. In these two you once walked when you were living in them. And so what he's getting at there is he's saying, let me go ahead and give you the principle and we'll unpack the rest of it. He's saying, actually, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me go ahead and give it to you. Sorry, I got off my outline there. Principle is this. Put off the old sinful behaviors that were a part of who you once were, but put on the new behaviors that are part of who you now are. Put off the old sinful behaviors that were part of who you once were, and put on the new behaviors that, were, that are part of who you now are. And so when he talks about these things, let's look at these. We'll, we'll pick up verse uh, 8, and then I want to unpack some of these. But you now put, must put them... Um, actually, hang on, sorry. This thing is really, it's like all, the, all over the place today. When he talks about sexual immorality and impurity and passion... He's talking about these sexual sins. Sexual immorality, the Greek word there is porneia. It refers to every kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. And that could cover all the things that you think that it could. I don't have to get into the specifics there. But then on top of that, when he talks about immorality, uh, or excuse me, impurity and passion and evil desire, all those things, kind of different flavors uh, of problematic uh, sexual and sensual behavior. But then he also throws in their covetousness, which is idolatry. The greed and the other vices that, that we can be so prone to. And I think for most of us, though the first category obviously can be a problem, it, it, it is a problem, I think in our particular context, that second one might actually be more of a problem. Because our area, which we've talked about this many times, which is very well-resourced, it is very easy to drive down the street and be like, well, I wish I had that house or that car or that life or that guy makes four times what, whatever you make. It's very easy to have that in front of you at all times and Satan be using that against you and your flesh is wonderfully happy to cooperate with it. And then when you have this whole social media industry that comes behind it that basically pours gasoline on this already hot fire, this can be a real issue for us. 
And I think part of what we need to think about here is we need to think about that is who we once were. The covetous person, the idolatrous person, the sexually ensnared person, that's part of that old life, which we already learned back at the front of the passage here. That's, that's died. That's dead. That's been crucified with Christ, as Paul says uh, over in Galatians 2.20. And so he's saying walk away from that because that's consistent with the old man, not the new man. And then on top of that, when he gets into verse 8 here, but now you must put them all away. So here's another kitchen sink kind of term. And then he gives some more specifics here. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And the specifics he's talking about there, anger is a deep smoldering bitterness. It's the attitude of an angry person. We all know people like that. Wrath is the sudden outburst of volcanic-like sinful anger. Then there's malice. That probably refers to the damage that's caused by evil speech. Slander means to talk bad about, to speak ill of other people. And, of course, obscene talk from your mouth. We know what that is, but it also has to do particularly with uh, foul-mouthed abuse towards specific people. And then on top of that, he goes further and he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of of its creator. So time after time after time, he goes over here, he goes over here, he goes over here, he goes over to this this kind of ping pong back and forth where he's weaving the same thread. These behaviors that were consistent with who you were before you met Jesus have got to go. But these behaviors that are now part of your new life in Christ, that's what you need to lean into. That's what you need to be about. That kind of behavior is what has got to stay. Now, let me also pick up one more thing here in verse 11, because if I don't, you're going to be scratching your head why this is here. He says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And what he's essentially saying there is he is countering a bad idea that would have been at work in their particular time. Now, one way to think about it, it's not exactly this, but it's almost, uh, it's almost like racism. That he's saying here, uh, the Scythians, for example, were a group of people located along the coast of the Black Sea, and to the Greeks, they were considered a violent, uneducated, uncivilized, and altogether un, uh, inferior people. And he's saying, listen, we can't look at people that way. We, we got to look at everybody the same. Everybody needs Jesus in equal amount. And so we need to understand that Christ, even though there are clearly distinctions, God made all these cultures and all this wonderful stuff. There's a, just a whole stained glass window of humanity. But it's not like some nations are great and some nations are, uh, are worthless. And that idea was out there. And so he's using another gospel truth to talk about what Jesus has brought together. So again, in its own way, that is another type of old man thinking that he is seeking to dispense with. Which is also why, in our day, to bring that forward, why racism has no place in the life of the Christian. Why classism has no place in the life of the Christian. Why 
ageism or any other ism has no place in the life of the Christian because that's the way unbelievers think. That's the old man. And the new man is setting his mind on things above. He is seeking those things where Jesus is. He is seeking to put on the new set of behaviors, not the old ones. If you're a picture drawer, let me give you a little image that you can draw here. What Paul is essentially saying here time and time again is you need to take off the old dirty clothes and you need to put on the new clean clothes. You take off the old stained garments of sin and the bad attitudes and all the isms and all that stuff and you put that in the trash heap because that's your past. And what is your present and your future is love of your neighbor. It's thinking about the things that are to come. It is engaging with people and loving them even though they're different from you. It is telling the truth as opposed to lying in verse 9. It is also having your mind renewed in verse 10 as opposed to having your mind torn down. It's showing patience instead of anger. It's showing kindness instead of wrath. It's showing love instead of malice. It's speaking good of instead of slandering. It's using your mouth to speak life instead of bring death in verse 8. And then all the way back up in verses verse 5 through 7, it's of having appropriate sexuality within the confines of marriage instead of all this other stuff beyond. It's being content instead of covetous. We want to leave behind all of the bad, and we want to walk into that which is good. Now, let's spend the last couple of minutes here talking about how we do that. Now, there's, there's so many different things that he talked about there. It runs the whole gamut, almost, of spiritual malady. So there's no way I can give us a strategy to address every one of those. But what I can do is I can give us a few principles that apply to any struggle with sin. And here's the way I want to do this. I want to say that any strategy of attacking sin in the way that he talks about in verse 5, this stamp it out, kill it, slay it utterly, it needs to have a few components. And the first one is this. It needs to deal with both the external and the internal. It needs to deal with both the external and the internal. And here's what I mean. Whatever your struggle is, if it only goes after the fruit, but it does not address the root, I would argue that it's incomplete. If you only address, let's apply this in parenting, the bad behaviors of your children but you never seek to take the gospel to the heart of your children, it's not going to bring the kind of lasting change that you want. Let me give you one example. Every kid in this room, at some point in their journey, is going to smack their sibling in the face. You don't have to figure out how to make it happen, but you do have to figure out how to make it stop happening. And if you just say, cut it out, don't hit. Now, sometimes you have to do that. But if you never try to help that child understand, Timmy, why did you take that toy? Because I wanted it. Well, why did you want it? Because he had it. You know, 
But keep digging, keep digging, keep digging, and help them understand at the core, at the bottom of all that, there was greed. There was covetousness, just like this passage is talking about. And then you take Jesus there. You deal with the root and the fruit. You talk about the heart. You talk about why there was fisticuffs in the first place and how all of that points us to Jesus. That will help. Do you have to do that 10,000 times? I don't know. Over the course of five kids, we probably did it 20,000 times. But we haven't had a fist fight in a while, and I'm thankful for that. And I'm not saying, because we are masterful parents, we're certainly not, but what I am saying is, if you help people understand the root of their behavior, it just leads to better change. But we're not just talking about parenting, are we? We're talking about our own lives. Whatever your struggle is here today, you got to figure out why that is. Not just what it is, but why that is. If you're always popping off at your kids, why? And sometimes we can do that very simply. There have been plenty of conversations where I just sat down with somebody and over a cup of coffee or whatever, we just we sorted it out. But sometimes these things run so deep, this is where biblical counseling comes in. And we've got access to, to good people now that can help you untangle the rest of what's going on. And if we really want to slay utterly sin in the way that Paul is talking about here, sometimes that's what it takes. It takes getting all the way to the bottom to figure out, oh man, there's like some family of origin stuff here that that's why I'm yelling at people. Or there's these other issues or whatever. And we need to work in both elements, both external and internal, to really seek to get at that. Sometimes it's not that at all. Sometimes it simply is pleasure-seeking. Sometimes it's either, or it's even, I am using this type of sinful whatever as medicine to deal with some kind of pain in my life. There's a lot of different reasons why people do what they do. And what I'm saying to you is, if we want to get to the heart of the matter, we got to get to the heart of the matter. So be encouraged. Lots of good resources. But that's where we need to go. Now, the second kind of category I want to give, always address external, internal. The second one would be this. The best strategies always include these elements. And here's what they are. God's word, God's gospel, God's plans, and God's people. The best strategies will always include God's word, God's gospel, God's plans, and God's people. And what I mean by that, God's word... It does at least four things. It rebukes us when we need it. It restrains us when we need it. It reminds us when we need it. And it restores us because we always need it. And sometimes, even in a sermon like this, you hear this today and you're like, okay, I'm on this list. And I see how bad it is. And I hear that there's big trouble here. That's part of who I was. It's not part of who I am. I need help. You've heard that gentle rebuke today. And the Lord is going to use that to pull you toward Jesus and remind you that he is your hope. Not your own self-effort. Not your own just doing better this week. But to pull you toward Jesus so that you might be restored 
And what is one of the great promises of restoration in the Bible? 1 John 1, 9 says this, For if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Now, that verse gets thrown around a lot in evangelism, and it certainly can apply there. But you know who it's written to? That verse is written to Christians. It's written to Christians. And so whatever your struggle is today, hear that for you. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive you and cleanse you of all your unrighteousness. So whatever it is that you feel and I just don't know if he's going to forgive me this time. This verse says that he will. For all the dirt and the shame that you can feel about whatever, guess what? He can cleanse it. It is a promise. And every strategy for change needs to include that kind of rebuke to restoration. It's got to be there. Which gets us to the next component, the gospel. <laughs> and what I mean by that is this functional centrality of the gospel that we talk about here. I mean, let me just give you just a couple ways we can get there through this particular passage. You see this idea here? God's wrath is coming against these things. That shows us how serious God takes sin, and it also shows us how precious Jesus is. Because if you're a Christian here today, God's wrath in an ultimate sense has been absorbed by Jesus on the cross for you. So God takes sin so seriously that he killed his own son, obviously through the, the instrumentality of these people, and he did that for you. His wrath was poured upon Jesus for you. And so the functional centrality of the gospel in that is God hates sin, but I have immense gratitude. Do you see that? Do you see how that brings change in your heart? And it, it just, that makes me want to set my mind on things that are above. Knowing that somebody died for me that didn't have to, to pay a penalty that he didn't even owe, that makes me want to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. You see how the gospel works in that way? Every strategy of sin eradication needs to include that kind of thinking. What about God's plans? Sometimes this is just being simple and practical. Romans 13, 14 says this. It says to uh, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, even the same language we're talking about here, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know what that means practically? That means if you find yourself, let me make up something absurd here, that with this particular group of people, you always end up getting in big trouble or getting drunk or somebody has to come pick you up. It just goes bad. Think of it in some absurd way like that. That might mean that you probably don't need to get together with those people. You might not even have to pray too hard or think too hard about that. It's just kind of obvious. These are not your people. That is practically what it could look like to put feet on what we're talking about here in the God's plan sense. To just not make provision for your flesh. To put yourself in a situation to make good decisions, not bad ones. And then finally, God's people. This is what we talk about here all the time. That your relationship with God is personal, but it's not private. 
that we need each other. We need gospel relationships and gospel accountability that will help us do what this passage is talking about. To put off the old, to put on the new, to walk alongside, to not judge but to love, to encourage and equip as we seek to make Jesus the operating system of our lives together. And speaking of Jesus, let's end this message by talking a little bit more about him. In a message like this, it is very didactic in nature. It's very practical. What Paul is saying here is a lot of, this is what I need you to do. It can be very easy to slip down that moralistic slope and say, okay, okay, I got to go do all this. And to run off and think that you have to do it without Jesus. Can I call us back from that today? Because let me tell you this, the only way you're going to do this anyway is with Jesus' help. Because your flesh is too strong, the world is too wicked, and Satan is too evil for you to go accomplish even one-eighth of this in your own strength. The only way we're going to get this even sort of right is with the Lord Jesus helping us along. But what was one of the things that we were reminded of last week? It was about the active obedience of Jesus, that Jesus has obeyed in every single area where we disobey, that he was victorious in every single place in this passage or in the other passage where we fail. And because of that active obedience and that glory that he now has, he can help us and he will help us walk in this new life that we have. He will help us put off the old day by day by day and put on the new. He will help us seek him and to set our minds on things above. He's just that good. And he's that willing. Jesus is willing. And he's not just willing. He loves to help his people. So whatever it is you're up against today, whatever it is you feel most beaten up by, convicted of, or just plain guilty of and ashamed of, Jesus' blood covers that. So when we think about all the things in this passage, none of them are stronger than Jesus. And when we are tempted to Go down these paths. None of them satisfy like Jesus. And when we are tempted to think that maybe Jesus doesn't know what's going on at all, friends, Jesus knows all and can be trusted and is worthy. Let's go to him now and ask for his help. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we are thankful to have been able to gather around your word today. We pray that you would continue to shape us and change us and help us and let us see what only you can do in our lives, in our church, and beyond. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.